Order. The Prime Minister. What a good idea. I move we take the Speaker's words down. Mr. President, catch this. The point of order is sustained. I rise today to begin to filibuster America and reach for the stars. We are human together. The best in America. I, I might have got here on my own. Howdy and welcome back to This Is News. I'm Reem, joined as always by Jack. Jack, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic, Reem. How are you? I'm doing really well. And you know what? I am really excited for this week's episode because Jack... This week marks a first in This Is News history. Indeed it does, Reem. That's right, listeners. For the first time ever, we have a guest on the show. And today's guest is a good friend of mine. He is the Chief Justice of the Louisiana State University Student Government University Court, the President of Young Americans for Freedom at LSU, and a political consultant. Welcome to the program, Nicholas Foster. Thank you, Reem. Really glad to be here. Yeah, we're uh, very glad to have you, Nick. Uh, first question, just right off the bat, you are the uh, president of the Young Americans for Freedom, and we are in the middle of an election season with Donald Trump, who has been uh, controversial, to say the least, uh, since even before <laughs> he became president, all the way since the uh, escalator ride in June of 2015. And that's caused a very interesting rift in the Republican Party based on age that we've never seen before. Uh, according to Time Magazine, while 85% of Republicans approve of Donald Trump's job performance overall, only 59% of conservative college students approve of Donald Trump. So I was wondering for you personally, do you approve of the job Donald Trump has done? And do you plan on voting for him in November? Great, great question, Jack. Um, in this case, I think lots of defer to the Buckley rule, which of course is voting for the most rightward, most viable candidate. And I do think Donald Trump is a viable candidate in this current climate. I know that other people on the show may disagree with me on that, but um, just I, I would not have given the same answer in 2016. But that's definitely where I am. Of course, I don't speak for the whole organization on that statement. Right. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the organization of Young Americans for Freedom. So what's kind of their history? How did they get started? And what's kind of their role on the college campus at this point? Right. Thank you, Reem. Um, well, Young Americans for Freedom was actually founded in the late 1900s by a collection of conservatives um, under the direction of William F. Buckley Jr. and other leading conservative figures such as Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. And they've taken the position of being the, in my opinion, leading conservative voice for college students, um, giving a voice to people who may feel that their beliefs are unpopular in a lot of college classrooms. And that's what we definitely did here at LSU when, we, when I started our chapter um, my freshman year, we're coming into kind of a vacuum Right, so LSU had a Students for Trump, which um, kind of fell apart from what I understand. And there was no real conservative voice on campus. Um, Turning Point USA was just beginning to start up a little bit after we finished our registration. But um, we kind of, we started as the geeky conservative book club of LSU and, and kind of turned into a little bit more than that. 
Very cool. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned the other main conservative group on campuses, TPUSA. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what separates uh, Young Americans for Freedom from TPUSA, what y'all agree on, and if there's any disagreements between the two groups and uh, why your group is a right? Well, right now, you know, I would say that both groups in general have a common mission of spreading conservatism. I think that our group does have a tendency to work better for my personal beliefs than Turning Point USA. But, you know, that's that's no offense to their organization or, or trying to bash them. Um, unfortunately, you are competing for kind of the same student base, right? You're looking for energized students to talk about conservative values. And um, a, a lot of times these days you lumped in with more libertarian students as well. So um, we do get a lot less social conservatives, more people who are socially libertarian as well. So, um, you know, they're sharing the same space. The way they go at things, I've noticed, especially the leadership has been a lot different. Um, Young Americans for Freedom has a more established pedigree of leadership in my experience. I mean, Scott Walker is, I think, currently the president of Yaf, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so if there's anyone who I think represents establishment GOP, it's probably Governor Scott Walker. For sure. Nick, let me let me ask something um, a little bit more specific. So you said that YF is kind of the conservative book club for a college campus. What's the last book y'all read? Good question. So um, we actually, we try to go around to a couple different books every year. Um, one, Dr. Burt Folsom, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He is a uh, professor, I believe, from University of Michigan. I, he may have transferred schools in the meantime or, or, or teaching careers expanded to other places. But um, almost anything that he has written has been um, definitely something that we try to look at. Um, one of the other books, let me think. Gosh, you're, you're catching me off, Reem. <laughs> it's nice for a change to be the one catching you off. Um, for listeners who don't know, Nick is my boss when it comes to LSU student government. So this is this is a little bit of a different uh, flip, flipping of roles, so to speak, I think. We'll definitely, we'll definitely. Well, you know, in, in post-edit, we'll... We'll shove that out, right, Reem? Uh, but the myth of yeah, yeah, look at out, look at out the part where I where I make you look bad, of course. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, Reem. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, but myth of the router barons um, was one of the last books we read. Of course, coronavirus kind of shut down everything for us. Well, uh, speaking of coronavirus, I know Young Americans for Freedom is one of the. Uh, best organizations at uh, getting conservative leaders on campus, giving speeches to the kids. Uh, I know I personally keep up with essentially every single, uh, yeah, Ben Ben Shapiro speech there is. Um, (laughs) What is the uh, chances we're going to be able to see some in-person speeches this year, or has COVID kind of wrecked that for y'all with the uh, time being? I can't give you a complete promise, but anything's a possibility. Right. So last year we were looking at Michael Knowles. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens this year. A lot of it's also up to what the LSU union decides to do. From what I understand, they're not taking reservations of more than 50 people right now. But um, 
We'll have to, we'll have to work with Yaf. Online speeches, uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty coming your way this for this next semester. So don't, don't, yeah. All right, Nick, let's, let's talk maybe a couple more questions on this and then, and then we'll kind of switch over to something different and listeners don't worry. We're still going to do the rank punditry, you know, and love uh, with Nick, of course. So Nick, if you were looking at a school like LSU um, among say D one schools, where does it kind of fall on the left to right spectrum and how does that compare to where the state of Louisiana is as a whole? You know, Reem, that's a really good question. And I've noticed LSU change within my time there. So right now I'm a rising senior. And when I came in, I noticed there was a large disenfranchisement of conservative voices on campus. And for a while, I felt like we picked up steam. I, I thought that there was a steady amount of conservatives, Republicans, and and this conversation I'm including the Britarians, who um, kind of stood up and organized a little bit more together to not only do programming events, but to get involved in other ways, especially in research. And uh, I'm seeing a lot less of that today. And I would have to say the turning point was probably the very beginning of 2018, um, when I started notice things trail out. I, I don't know what that necessarily says for the future, but in terms of other schools, I would say LSU probably ranks equally with a lot of SEC schools in its left-right divide. It's probably kind of around that same area, center-left. Of course, you do have those strong supporters, a lot of what you see in the Greek community, but um, that's that's where I would put a peg on them. All right. So, yeah, and uh, not just LSU, but college campuses as a whole, there seems to be a very strong liberal-leaning and anti-conservative hostile environment. I mean, uh, currently 51% of the Democratic Party is a pro-hate speech laws. Uh, we've seen uh, at UConn, they offered therapy sessions after Ben Shapiro spoke. Uh, they've torn down posters for conservative speakers at Stanford. I know I was at Tarleton University last year, and that's about as conservative as you can get. And still the TPUSA uh, posters were being vandalized around campus. What do you think conservative students can do to both fight the liberal bias and ensure that kids here uh, receive and welcome the uh, conservative message on campus? Well, I'm really glad you actually brought that up. One thing I was instrumental in um, my time in college is I helped get our Louisiana Act, it's actually aptly named Act 666, um, signed by the governor, which does enforce the rights of free speech on campus. Um, so, you know, for a while, LSU was going through some issues of policing what students could and could not say. Um, we even had free speech alley, right? That's the only place pamphlets could be distributed, where students could kind of gather together. Now, of course, we don't have those rules anymore. It's a really beautiful thing. So, you know, if you're in a state that does have hate speech restrictions or free speech restrictions on college campus, I'd really strongly encourage you to meet with the local legislator, you know, state senate, your state house, and, and try to get them to start that movement to write a bill. 
Um, because I guarantee you that most state legislators across the country are going to pass some form of legislation like that. And it's a big undertaking to take, but it's definitely worth it in our long run. You know, it's, I, I believe it's not only the right thing to do, but it's something that we're all called to do, whether or not we agree with the opinion. Nick, if you don't mind me kind of following up on that, there's speech that a lot of people would say, you know, ought to be banned from college campuses, right? Like speech that not necessarily incites violence, right? Because that's actionable under current law, but speech that is... Um, like if a Nazi came to campus. Yeah, like... like that is hurtful for one towards one group, but does not present a clear and present danger. You're not necessarily saying that that speech should always be endorsed. Right. But that the right to say it should be protected. Yeah, definitely. We actually had this question by a state representative, um, Pat Smith at the time the bill came up and uh, she was a former educator and she was very much against this free speech legislation. And, she gave the example, you know, the KKK wanted to hold a rally on campus. And what was really, I found disturbing about this, it's not even the assumption that the KKK would come have a rally on LSU's campus, but it was actually LSU's response saying, you know, of course, no, we don't want that to happen. Instead, they said, well, we're afraid how that would make athletics look. What was the actual response LSU gave in that situation? So, um, but no, definitely all speech that's not actively causing harm to somebody, right? Through inciting violence it is permissible under our constitution. And, you know, whether or not it's palatable, you know, you can get into that question later because, you know, definitely I don't think anyone wants to hear a Nazi or, or whatever bad group of people um, come and, and, and say those things. But it, it's definitely something that is permissible under the constitution in my view. Right, of course. And one thing I will point out real quick before we get to the next question is uh, it's very important who's getting to define what is a Nazi. I think we, us three, would say a Nazi is a Nazi, but there are definitely some college uh, students who would say that uh, Michael Knowles or uh, Ben Shapiro is a Nazi or Dan Crenshaw. And uh, that's where it gets really dicey. But uh, how do you think with the left becoming so hostile to free speech views and claiming that like if it hurts a certain group, if it makes minorities feel uncomfortable, then we should ban it. What is our argument against that when they claim you can't have free speech because your speech hurts me? What do we say to rebut that? Now, I'm going to kind of step back from that question real quick before I go into an answer, because tagging off your previous statement, I, I've noticed a big thing among campus, and not only students, faculty members have kind of perpetuated this notion that speech can be violence, right? Speech can right. be a hurtful thing that um, must be stopped. And, and I think it not only starts with students, I think it it definitely starts with the faculty members as well are kind of buying into this idea and it's, it's traveling down through their history of pedagogy into the students. Um, so I, I think that's a place that the battle should definitely be fought is in the classroom from an academic perspective. Um, but those Lockean ideals, I think definitely need to be taught in high schools and uh, earlier education in college. People go into a political science classroom or a communications class and speech. And, you know, that's a lot of time, the first time they're exposed to some of those, those deeper political texts, 
that are just kind of kept away from students in history classes today, in my experience in a public school at least. Oh, I completely agree with you when it comes to that. Okay, so Nick, we're going to turn kind of to comparative politics at this point. Not, not, not comparative politics in the traditional sense between countries, but comparative politics kind of between Texas and Louisiana, right? So well-versed Texas politics listeners will know that there's some fun stories from Texas politics, we're like the, the, special se- the special session that lasted one hour because the legislature didn't want to be there. The... Wendy Davis filibuster, the Killer D's, and the Texas 11. All of these are kind of seminal moments in Texas history. What are some of the really interesting stories from Louisiana political history? Well, I'm very glad you asked that. You know, Louisiana, unfortunately, has this reputation of being a... Trying to put this lightly, but a a corrupt government, right? If you look through history... Nick, is that reputation well-earned? I mean... You would have to say yes, right? (laughs) That's very unfortunate because, you know, anyone who knows me knows I I have this very strong love for the Louisiana legislator in our system of government. But part of the, the charm to it that makes it so interesting is how absolutely crazy it can be at times. Uh, if you if you just take a look back through history, well, I'll give you an example. And we actually have the seats in our house are bolted to the ground because there's been so many instances of a member of the legislator hitting another member during debate, right? So I, I think you actually have similar stories to that in Texas. Is that right, Reed? Easily, yes, easily. That's how politics is supposed to be. If someone's not getting beat senseless with a chair, are we even debating? <laughs> No, Seems definitely. Fair to me. Sure. Definitely. On the so, subject. Sorry, Jack. I want to. I want to actually. I want to ask about a more current, for sure, for interesting sure. political thing that happened in Louisiana. So, I was just a baby um, Louisiana political consumer at the time. I want to say it was when this last session started in January, if I'm not mistaken. But there was a really interesting Speaker of the House race, if I'm not incorrect. Can you? kind of shed light on what happened there and kind of how that race shook out? So in Louisiana, we have this really strange system that none of the votes are actually cast on the floor, right? They all happen three weeks beforehand at an Italian restaurant, right? (laughs) Where all all the legislators get together, they talk things out, and they kind of wager, and it's like a high state game of cards. So not only does this apply to Louisiana House race, but it applies to Louisiana Senate race. And whoever shows their cards at the right time wins. And to jump over to the Louisiana Senate, which is where I was a staffer for for a while, um, that, that's how Paige Cortez won the Senate presidential race, was he knew he had the support, and he kind of wagered between the different factions of the Republican Party. And he's a very, very outstanding guy. I don't think he has a an enemy really in that body. Um, so it was kind of a natural choice, I think, for some of the more liberal-leaning Republican members to to vote for him. Um, and he just, he just happened to have, have his cards at the right time because a lot of people go into those meetings with a lot of votes, right? And they say, well, if you give me this committee ship, I'll throw my support behind you. And, and that's the same thing that always happens. And I think that's a tradition 
that is just as time honored as Huey P. Long. <laughs> yeah, on the uh, subject of Louisiana politics, got two more fun type of questions to ask you. First, did FDR have Huey Long assassinated? Yes or no? <laughs> I'll give you an in-between answer, and I'll, I'll be really serious with you, Jack. Okay, so working in that building and, and going up the stairs at night, I, I've looked at the area of Huey P. Long shot over and over, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'll give you, I'll give you a crazy story from what I personally believe. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think um, Dr. Carl Weiss hid behind one of the columns at the state capitol. If you look at it, it just, it doesn't make sense, right? This has always been a traditionally closed off area. But late at night, Huey P. Long, his like 50 bodyguards are walking up and down this tiny corridor and they don't see a man in a seersucker suit hiding behind a column. I, I just, I don't buy it. Um, and the story gets so fishy with the state police going through and finding the gun in the possession of a former superintendent in a safe deposit box in New Orleans, of all places. It, it, it's an interesting story. I don't know what happened that night. I doubt we ever will. But um, I, I do doubt that Carl Weiss ended up killing Huey P. Long. And, and maybe that's just because that's what we want to believe. Um, and I tell you, so many staffers, people I've talked to, especially of all people, one of the night watchmen at the Louisiana State Senate is the chief person to talk to about all Huey P. Long death plots. He has it all mapped out. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. And then my uh, one last question real quick on the fun topics. Uh, according to Business Insider, uh, future Hall of Famer Drew Brees has expressed a desire for running for governor someday. If Drew Brees runs for governor in Louisiana, do you think, do you think he wins? Well, Shameless plug, if he calls my political consulting firm, we may be able to help him get over the top this time. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Drew Brees, he's a very good guy. You know, he, he came to sure. my school when I was growing up because he's, he's our celebrity, right? Drew Brees and all of South Louisiana is, you know, probably second to the Pope for most people. Um, <laughs> a, a saint nonetheless, right? So, um yes. In more ways than one. Good guy. I do think he lost a lot of respect, though, from Louisianans after the whole debacle of kneeling for the for the national anthem and for the flag, and retracting his comments on that. So, so I, what I do you think, think he should have done for that? Do you think he should have uh, stood by his original comments and said yes, you should stand, or uh, do you think he should not have said that you should stand? From a from a PR perspective, if I was Drew Brees' agent or one of his PR part of his PR firm, you know, outrage has a tendency to die down if you don't keep on fueling the fire. I, I think by retracting a statement, he did end up getting a double backlash that people would have forgot about in one, one week. So, um, you know, that's just part of the time we live in, especially with coronavirus. I noticed a lot of people are very bored. So they like to kind of stoke the fires of outrage when stories are dead three or four days. Okay. One, I have to say, Jack must be like thrilled right now that he's getting to talk culture war issues right now on the podcast because, um, 
Well, that's not that's not normally on the agenda. So, Jack, I'm sure you're really enjoying this now. So, Nick, I'm on a bit of a crusade to expose just how convoluted the office of the Texas Attorney General is and the absurd amount of power they're given to the extent that they are probably the most powerful state official during any legislative session. Could you explain what the role of the Louisiana Attorney General is? So for listeners in Texas, Jeff Landry is our current attorney general. He's kind of like this, uh, almost like a hero figure um, with the Louisiana Republican Party, right? He's held the office since 2016. And previously, he was in the U.S. House of Representatives for the district. And and he's interesting because he kind of paints himself as this, this Cajun attorney, where he can kind of get anything done. And he's been one of Donald Trump's surrogates um, up in front for attorney. I think there's a group called Lawyers for Trump, and he's one of the the four board members for that group. So he definitely does a good job at supporting that agenda coming from Washington. Um, And really, Jeff Landry's job is kind of, you can sum it up as, the person keeping the governor in check the most, right? So our, our legislator meets once a year without the special session. They're not always in session and uh, they are part-time legislators. Jeff well, that's Landry, just insane. I mean, imagine having an annual legislative session. Yeah, that's insane. There's, there's no way there's that much government work to do. Touche, touche. But um, <laughs> Jeff, Land- Jeff Landry's job is essentially stopping John Bell Edwards, our current governor, from getting anything done. And, um, you know, he, he uses that legal authority to tap into that power. And he does a, he does a relatively good job as, as attorney general. I, I wouldn't speak bad about him. Um, and I, from my experience, most of our Democratic, more liberal friends have nothing against him personally. He, he does seem to be a, a very good guy. All right. Now, uh, continuing on the uh, topic of Louisiana government, uh, I believe I'm correct in saying that uh, your state, just like Texas, elects their judges, right? Yes. Y- yes, we do. And now, um, we actually we just got through some elected Supreme Court members from back home where I live. So very cool. So do you think that is uh, electing judges is a good idea that's a benefit for a government? Or do you think it'd be better if uh, Louisiana switched to appointing their judges and justices? Well, I I like to think we do everything in Louisiana for a reason. Now, maybe that's too optimistic knowing our political system. But, um, you know, we have had a very interesting history of trying to draw certain lines so judges can be elected (laughs) in certain areas. Like, you know, same old, same old. Right. But, um, you know, personally, I, I do not have a fault with an elected judge. Um, as, a, as a consultant, the more elections, the better for me. So. <laughs> Very true. All right. So just kind of one more, actually, on the topic of elections as a consultant. What's kind of been your favorite win that you've had um, over the course of your, albeit, early career? Gosh, great question. Um, well, we, we have a lot going on. So my company's called Foster Global Strategies. Um, we abbreviate Foster GF. So uh, over the course of our history, you know, we formed 
just before the coronavirus as a firm with, uh, with five employees now besides myself. Um, but historically, just as in my career as a consultant, I worked a long time for Senator Sharon Hewitt, who is, of course, our House Majority, not House, excuse me, our Senate Majority Leader for the Republican Party and our Louisiana State Legislator. Um, so it, it's been a, a real honor to work with her for a while. I actually got involved in her first campaign, and that's what brought me to world politics. Um, as far as wins go, so I, I'm going to be optimistic and say I hope it's the next one. I'm currently working for a client in a Silicon Valley area that's running, running a mayoral election. So uh, fingers crossed, it, it would be a great win if we can get a Republican elected in the heart of Eric Swalwell's district. So. That would be uh, pretty good news. And for that, just elections as a whole, I know Texas, there's a huge fear. There's the push to turn Texas blue this year. The polls are not looking good for President Trump. How are things looking in Louisiana? Should Republicans be uh, expecting some gangs or should we uh, should we be worried? So, you know what, that's really interesting. The trends have picked up so much more among Democrats. So Louisiana, you would think would be you know solid red state, right? Because of how they vote in presidential elections. The Republican Party is actually just catching back up with the Democratic Party in terms of amount of voters registered. So for the longest time, Democrats have far outnumbered registered Republicans in the state. And we're just getting to the point where we're approaching where they are. However, their party for a long point of time has been very unorganized. They don't work well together. Um, Their leadership has been kind of divided in the past. And what we're seeing right now is a race for a new chair of the party. And it's going to be, from all assumptions I can make right now, it looks like Ted James, who is a House member. He uh, is in a house hospitalized for COVID-19. And he's a very strong speaker, um, very popular in the African-American community, and uh, just a, a relatively motivational, nice guy. And I think Republicans are probably worried of what Ted James can do as as chair of the Democratic Party. Because I, I think he definitely mobilized a lot of younger student support um, to try and get off of the, the Democrats. I don't think there's going to be much of electoral change. You know, we just had our, our 2018 elections, which is where we, excuse me, 2019, um, re-elected most of our state Senate and state house, as well as new governor. Of course, our not new governor. We, uh, we voted to keep governor John Bill Edwards currently, but, um, you know, strong Republican gains. We have a supermajority in the Senate. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future. Always a good thing to hear when Republicans have a supermajority. I wonder, though, how much do you think Donald Trump is going to impact local elections? You've got some elections you're working on for your consulting firm. And I know in Texas, we're seeing polls that show John Cornyn up by 10, but Donald Trump down by one. And we're seeing that around the country that seems to be infecting other places, like Arizona's historically Republican, but McSally's down by nine. And it seems like there's a lot of fears that he could kill everyone down ballot. Are, are you concerned about that? Or do you think Republicans down ballot should be just fine, even with Donald Trump being Donald Trump? Well, so not necessarily. Um, I, I think one of the big questions we have to talk about is vote by mail. Right. So most states have approved a a vote by mail initiative, which 
frankly, can benefit Republicans. I know that's not something that you're seeing a lot, but I, I was on the phone with a consultant last week from Iowa, and she said, look, most of our Republican voters are older, and they're not getting steady transportation to the polls. It's a vote by mail. This is going to be so good for our state politics. So, you know, I, I think the jury's still out, and we're still waiting to find the exact answer to what's going to happen. I, I will say at the same time, the numbers are not looking great for Donald Trump right now, but I don't think it's impossible. You know, I think with some good procedural changes to his team, we could definitely see another four more years, but it's going to be hard. All campaigns are hard. I just don't know if his current team is ready to weather that battle. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, this time uh, in 88, I believe that uh, George H.W. was down by 17 against Dukakis, although I will say I think H.W. Uh, had a little more uh, discipline than uh, Trump. But uh, are you concerned about mail-in voting at all? I know uh, the president is extremely worried that it will be ripe for fraud. I kind of agree. In 2018, we actually saw in North Carolina an election had to get overturned because of mail-in, voter ba- uh, mail-in ballot fraud. Uh, do you think that's going to be a big problem? You know, I don't really have, I don't have a crystal ball, Jack. I can't really say what I think is going to happen. But I, I do have some assumptions. You know, we've already seen USPS workers um, manipulating ballots in the past. I think that was a small scale case. Was that in West Virginia? Would you, would you happen to know, Jack? Um, the mail-in, I don't know. There's been a lot of voting, uh, fraud cases recently like some people got arrested in new jersey a judge i believe in new york got arrested it's been all over the place mm-hmm. but and if oh, I I may, know there was one in west virginia i know what you're talking about the ballot showed up in connecticut i want to say or something insane yeah so, if I, I may there's there's ahead, about man. to be a there's about to probably be a case against some kanye west um employees <laughs> over falsifying ballot signatures but conversation for another time <laughs> <laughs> No doubt, no doubt. You know, I, I'm really interested. A race I'm looking at is going to be Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. I think that's going to be a very interesting senatorial election. And um, crucify me now, guys, but uh, I'm kind of partial to Lindsey Graham. So, um, we'll Lindsey Graham 2.0 has been amazing, I have to say. We'll, we'll see what happens. You know, he's, he's kind of the right level of hawkish, in my opinion, on foreign policy. So, um, I, I like a guy who's hard on China, and uh, Lindsey Graham definitely doesn't offer any condolences their way whatsoever. So. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm uh, very happy whenever I see a, a Republican candidate standing up to China. And uh, on that, how do you feel about uh, President Trump's uh, TikTok ban or pending ban, depending on uh, what Microsoft does? You know, it, We'll see if Microsoft goes through and ends up buying TikTok. Um, I, I don't know how large of a sale that's going to be, but it definitely is going to shape the election coming up. TikTok, I've always personally been against the product. Uh, you know, coming from a, a military family, my father was never allowed to have TikTok on his phone um, because Department of Defense employees are not allowed to have that on their cellular device, right? And and there is this threat of what information is being monitored, what is going to the Chinese government. So it's it's always, it's something to keep an eye on. Right. All right. 
Let's get into some of the rank punditry. Of course, today, big news from the New York Attorney General that she will be suing the National Rifle Association, or the NRA, to be disbanded completely and totally, alleging um, violations of rules regarding 501c3s. It's, of course, worth noting that these allegations have nothing to do with the NRA's lobbying efforts and are solely related to organizational best practices. Jack, I'm going to let you talk about this in a moment because I know you have a lot of feelings about it. But first, in the interest of courtesy, let's allow our guests to have a couple words. Nick, thoughts on the NRA case from the New York Attorney General? Lobbying is quite an interesting issue to get into in general. And of course, I may be biased here. I, I was an NRA member for for a little bit of time. I don't think I ever ended up renewing my membership, though. Um, but, you know, there's a whole ethical question as well as what is right in lobbying? And as a nonprofit, how can the NRA better their own goal, right? How can they get closer to the field goal? And... Um, I, again, I think the jury's out on this one. I think we'll we'll see where it goes in court. Jack, what, do you have any opinions? Uh, yeah, so I did. As a conservative, if you read the headline, New York Attorney General targeting NRA, your first thought is, how dare this evil monster touch my cherished organization? And uh, that was kind of my thought. I read the Wall Street Journal on it, though, and it actually appears that New York may have a case. The uh, NRA has been doing some uh, fishy business. Uh, the president of the NRA may have been uh, misusing some of the NRA's funds for his like family members and friends. And I believe there was some reporting that this may be the case on conservative news sites about a year ago, but it never really developed into anything. So it's certainly something worth looking for. But as a whole, I think we need to be worried about New York in one aspect. It may very well be true that the NRA is guilty of a crime, but New York, the New York Attorney General really is acting inappropriate when it comes to her political rivals. It was uh, the head of Stalin's secret police, uh, Beria, who uh, had the doctrine, show me the man and I will show you the crime. And there's a scary, there's a scary trend on the left where they're starting to embrace this. This, uh, the New York Attorney General, before she was elected, promised that she was going to target President Trump. It's not a good thing when law enforcement officers are specifically targeting their political rivals. Occasionally, they'll find a true crime because all people are, all people commit crimes and sin, and their political rivals happen to be people. But uh, it, it is kind of disturbing to see New York. It kind of feels like purposely target groups like the NRA. And uh, it's kind of a balance where the NRA might be doing something bad, but I am worried to see New York's actions. Uh, Reem, do you have anything on it? Why was the NRA headquartered in New York for so long? I think I, I think I that's that a yeah. that's a, that, But that, no, I mean, the... I got to watch the attorney general's press conference live this morning. She was very clear that this is not about their lobbying efforts. This is only about organizational best practices and misconduct on the part of executives, including Wayne LaPierre, which I, I think, think is the right move. him. Yes. And I think that's the right move. I think if you were focusing on the lobbying efforts instead, this would become highly politicized. 
And quite frankly, I'd be quite worried um, if they were only suing based on the lobbying efforts, because as the NRA, you can make a very easy case that no, 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 we were there to educate voters and educate elected officials and it gets really murky. But doing it this way, it's a very clear, no, no, this isn't about politics. This is about, are you a well-functioning organization? And I think that's an important conversation for the courts to have. And I, for one, look forward to New York versus National Rifles Association coming to the Supreme Court in 2022. Definitely going to be exciting. I have to completely agree with you when it comes to the uh, the NRA being in New York. That's like Planned Parenthood headquartering in Mississippi. Like you're just asking <laughs> for things to go poorly. But um, moving from that topic, uh, we see it's starting to be August and still the uh, fight if we should go back to college, if we should be opening up the schools, how loose should we be with COVID restrictions? Nick, what's your opinion on all this? Are you thinking that we need to be uh, less strict or uh, more strict moving forward when it comes to COVID lockdowns? So obviously, you know, I'm not a doctor and, and thank God um, that I'm not the one making this, this policy, right? Because it, It's still up in the air for a lot of people. However, in, in my personal experience, I don't see a path forward for us to get better as a society without opening schools again. I, I think that is the, the next logical step. And, you know, if we see a spike, let's be cautious. Let's not have a one and done if something happens everyone just continue going back to school you know if, if we have to go in waves and kind of edge into it you know that's that's something i'd be very open to but um very much i, I think that this is need to start reopening and you know i just hope that there's a social contract between people that we do need to slow the spread keep your distance wear a mask and there's not an issue there Right. As far as the city mask mandates, uh, I think it's going to be really interesting seeing the cases filed by whichever conservative group five years down the line against these mini tyrants that we have as mayors. So that's going to be that's going to be a real interesting conversation out down the road. Whether or not the mandate is the right thing or the ethical thing to do, I'll leave that for other people to decide. But from a legal sure. standpoint, you think, it's definitely it's going to be an interesting conversation. Do you think these government, uh, like the mayors and the governors and their medical advisors, lost a lot of their credibility when they were simultaneously telling you if you go to church, you'll kill grandma, but also you can protest in the streets and we'll tell our contact tracers they can't ask you if you've been to a protest? Well, definitely. I, I think that's something that we're really going to see in the vacuum that's going to be created with this whole issue, right? So so we're not going to talk about it in the next three months. I think it's going to be something that really comes up two years down the line. And, you know, our mayor here in Baton Rouge led our George Floyd protest. And, you know, that's something I'm sure she felt very compelled to do and believe she was doing the right thing at the time. But in a way, I, I do think there's going to be a question coming up. If, was that the best thing to do? Um, were the right precautions taken during that protest. So we really don't know. Right. 
And uh, speaking of George Floyd, Reem, I actually wanted to get your opinion on something. There's been a more footage released of the George Floyd uh, incident. And of course, I think we can all agree it was a horrific event and the uh, officer should be prosecuted over something. I mean, George Floyd should be alive, breathing today. But uh, the video adds a lot. Uh, it basically throws uh, a wrench into the whole situation. Apparently, there were multiple people there, not just George Floyd, which I wasn't aware of that the police were like talking to and arresting and uh george floyd was claiming that he could not breathe before the officer had him down on the ground and this is very interesting because one of the autopsies shows that the knee was not the main cause of death so obviously the officer should be prosecuted but i'm a little worried that we may try to over prosecute them and go with a murder charge when we should be going with an assault charge or maybe a third degree murder charge. And we could see an officer who should be in jail, walk away scot-free because of that. And then if you think the protests are bad now, just wait until then. What do you think, Reem? Do you think we should lower the charge a little bit or do you think we're good? Well, let's be clear about a few things. First and foremost, this is not a first degree murder incident. It was not premeditated. For all we know, this should not be a first-degree murder charge under any circumstance, period. A prosecutor looking for a first-degree murder charge is frankly being irresponsible. This is probably not a second-degree murder charge either. Um, Minnesota law is interesting when it comes to these kinds of things. But from my non-lawyer understanding of it, this is not a second degree murder charge either. Yeah. I think that requires intent in Minnesota. I'm not exactly positive what it requires, but I do think you can get third degree murder out of this and you can definitely get manslaughter out of this. Right. And here's the deal. At the end of the day, the bigger problem here is the culture of exemption that police officers feel thanks to things like qualified immunity and the immense power that police unions hold over local politics in their jurisdictions for sure. right those I, I, real quick Reem, i just looked it up for second degree in minnesota it had it's not premeditated but you had to have the intent to kill yeah i don't know if you're going to be able to convince a jury of that beyond a reasonable doubt especially once you get a jury that's not actually in minnesota it's probably in a much more rural and more conservative part of Minnesota. I don't know if they're going to be as up in arms over, Oh my goodness, we're going to find him guilty. You, you might be able to find a pretty sympathetic jury um, in some more rural parts of Minnesota. And I don't, I'd worry that by shooting for the moon, you're going to miss and get lost in space. Right. I completely agree. What's your thoughts on it, Nick? I don't know if the person being interviewed, if I'm allowed to, to really jump in and ask questions, but I was, I was going to defer and ask questions about qualified immunity, if y'all have any opinions. But, but first, I will say, oh, I please do that the protest following George Floyd's death, you know, are, are rooted in this really strong sense of people feeling like there is a system of prejudice against people of color in the country. However, I am really interested to see the political implications of how do these protests affect our policy. And, you know, I can almost guarantee you, I, I'm sure that most people who watch the, the footage, which was horrible, right? So I think we all agree George Floyd should be alive today. Um, of course. However, I, I do not think that 
any of the law enforcement officers in that video were trying to kill George Floyd from a strictly premeditated racial motivation. And would would both of y'all agree with that statement there? Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, it was not premeditated. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see where we go from there. Um, As far as qualified immunity being changed, that that will be a hard battle, right? Any changes to qualified immunity are going to be strongly opposed by police unions and and, and police associations. Um, So we'll see how the country changes in time, but um, I'm sure it will still be an issue foreseeably in the next 20 to 20 to 30 years. Oh, for sure. Well, and if I may, it's of course worth noting that qualified immunity, which was created by the courts, has been ignored by the Supreme Court when their most recent, um, when they they announced some of the cases they would be taking for the next term. All cases relating to qualified immunity were rejected in somewhat of a surprising move because that rejection happened after these protests had begun. And so if there was ever a time you would think that the court might be interested in abolishing qualified immunity, it would be now. And it appears that there frankly aren't four justices who want to consider it. We'll ream that as uh, you putting much too much or too much faith in uh, chief justice Roberts. Uh, <laughs> but you don't even need Roberts. You could have Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh all come out and say they want to abolish it. Or you could have Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Well, the left is not going to take this up. But yeah, I do. The Supreme Court is very disappointing. We have an entire episode about that already for our listeners where you can hear us rant about one of the worst branches we've got, and they're all pretty bad. But uh, Nick, I was kind of curious. We have seen from these protests, it's really, I don't feel like it's much about George Floyd anymore. I mean, there's a abolish the police. There's uh, calls about like a rent control. Uh, it, it just really seems it's moved on. And one of the things we've seen is it's moved into the business and sports world. It seems every single business is being told they have to virtue signal with like, here's our Black Lives Matter product. Or here's how we're supporting George Floyd. And then we've seen that especially in sports with uh, everyone kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, Instead of the players' names, they can have stuff like equality or Black Lives Matter. And uh, do you think that this increased politicalization of the business world and of sports is uh, healthy for the nation? And what do you think we can do if it's a bad thing to fight against it and get back to where we can go to a store and we can watch a game without having politics thrown into our face? It's definitely not healthy for the nation, Jack. And I think this is something that's going to be a battle for many years to come. And I hope we don't get to the point where you have conservative Home Depot versus very liberal lows, right? I I hope that that's far from the reality. But at this point, you know, we'll see how the virtue signaling takes us, what, what rabbit hole it takes us down. I think it's very disingenuous. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the jokes about how at 1159, as soon as Pride Month is over with, right, all the companies had to change their logos back to their regular colors. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, I just, I personally find it very disingenuous for the company. It's anything to make a, make a quick buck there. And if companies actually had these values where they're trying to institute social change, 
you know what, that's their prerogative. I'll stay out of their space and, and let them say whatever they want. Because, you know, I believe that's an extension of their owner's free speech as well. But in most cases, the pandering, it's just, it's relentless. And I think most Americans are tired of it. And honestly, early on, I consider that a factor to the Trump effect in 2016, right? That's one of the reasons why we saw President Donald Trump was because people were just fed up with having all of the virtue signaling shovel down their throat, regardless of the facet it was in. So I, I hope we can find a time where we can unite as a, as a nation. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's not necessarily an optimistic time for the country, but all of that could change. And that really, that takes a good leader to rally around and, uh, and we'll see where that takes us. For sure. Jack, am I allowed to hop in here on this one? No. <laughs> All right. Then I'm going to take that as a yes. And here we go. Um, look, most of the corporations that are doing this are publicly traded corporations. So that means that they're democratic in their nature and how their board members are selected um, after all, the members of the board are elected by the shareholders. So if the shareholders don't like what the company's doing, elect different members of the board. And if you don't like what a company's doing, and it's a publicly traded company, you can buy their stock and elect different members of the board. And so if these companies think this is what they need to do to please their shareholders, and they're a publicly traded company, that's, that's their obligation. But if you're a shareholder of a company who's doing something you dislike... It's your obligation to speak up and elect board members who agree with your philosophy. What about the um, ring for that? I'll push back just a little bit. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. the government shouldn't get involved. A private business should be able to do whatever they want. Uh, Correct. But what do you think the consumer should do when it comes to this? Do you think consumers should be, uh, conservative consumers especially, should be very loud and vocal informing groups like the NBA, hey, if you keep this up, we're going to take our business elsewhere? Well, Look, if you're a consumer, you can vote with your wallet. Or if you're talking about sports, you can vote with your television ratings. Um, And at the end of the day, market pressures are a powerful thing. Um, As an economics major, um, market pressures are one of the biggest things that will force companies to actually change their minds, not social pressures. Right. So if a lot of companies are doing this, they're thinking it's because there's market incentive to do so. And so if you disagree with these actions, what you as a consumer should do is vote with your wallet and say, oh, no, 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 there's not market incentive to do so. In fact, I'm going to stop buying from you. Now, here's the deal. No one's really been effective at a boycott here in the um, last five years or so, regardless of who's trying to do it. Everyone kind of seems to fizzle out after a couple weeks. I remember when Dick's Sporting Good was getting boycotted. I remember when Nike was getting boycotted. And I don't think that's been happening. Right. But I, I do feel like as it gets more and more partisan, it'll be more incumbent on us to start pushing back. Cause I think at the government level, we need to have our rights be protected no matter what, but at the social level, we need to have a culture of rights where everyone is kind of on board with allowing free speech, with uh, recognizing that America is a really great place. And I am kind of concerned about the future of the nation. If all of our major businesses and industries are accepting the propaganda that America is a horrible, evil, bigoted, racist place. And I just don't see that uh, boding well for the uh, future of the country if that becomes the standard 
uh, system on which corporations operate. But um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Yeah. Great having you on. It was. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate the chat. Hope we can have one of these again in the future. Of course. And for all of our listeners, as always, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at this is news pod, where we talk about the episode uh, and we'll also talk about future episodes and maybe solicit feedback. And of course we welcome any and all feedback on our social channels. We have already only positive feedback. We've made this very clear five stars only. We that's it. If you haven't already liked and subscribed to the podcast on your platform of choice, be sure to do so. If you have a friend who you think would enjoy the show, send it their way. As always, for This Is News, I'm Reem. And I'm Jack, who's not paying And we'll talk to you all soon.